You're listening to Wide Margins, episode 38, Life Interrupted. In this installment of The Life of Jacob, The Favored Cheat, you might be tempted to read into it some romance, but there's not a whole lot of romance in the Bible. Now, the Bible does give good instructions, of course, on marriage and on human relationships. I mean, God's the one who invented these things. He ought to know what would make marriage work and how love should work. And he displays and demonstrates the greatest faithfulness there is. And so I'm not saying the Bible doesn't know anything about human relationships. I'm just saying it doesn't spend a whole lot of time in its stories on romance. It's just not one of the purposes of the Bible. But when you come to Genesis 29, you may think you're reading something romantic, you know, something for those who are looking for that kind of thing. It takes a break in all of the action and the commandments and the theology to tell us about this relationship between Jacob and Rachel. Jacob's come to Mesopotamia to his kinsmen, the descendants of his grandfather Abraham, and he meets Rachel and her sister Leah. And the Bible says that Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And a few verses later it says, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. But if you're turning to this story today, to read romance, you've come to the wrong place. This is not a romance novel. It's actually a story of how Jacob, the cheater, gets cheated. How his father-in-law Laban tricks him into marrying the older sister of the woman that he truly loves. And what's really interesting about this is when you examine the behavior of Jacob's father-in-law, it's eerily similar to Jacob's scheme to deceive his father and to steal his brother's blessing. So, that's the point of the story. The pain, the deceit, the betrayal that comes upon Jacob. The romance is there, but it's, it's only secondary. And you also might make another flaw as you're trying to interpret the story from Genesis chapter 29. You may think it's an example of karma. What goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. Jacob cheated his brother and his father, and, and now Jacob is the one being cheated. But it's not that either. What we're looking at here has to do with the purposes of the Lord. This is a lesson on the discipline of the Lord. And in some ways, this is an ideal story to use for a study of how God works in our lives. It's a better story than our last lesson, where Jacob dreams about this ladder reaching into heaven, and hears the voice of the Lord, and he sees angels ascending and descending, and has this miraculous experience, that kind of thing really doesn't happen to us today. 
It's better than the book of Exodus, where we read of the ten plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. That's certainly not something that we should expect in our own personal lives. It's even better than studying the miracles of Jesus. If you're looking for how does the Lord shape me and bring me to his will in this life, this is a great place to go to for guidance on that. And the reason is God's activity these days is not overt. He's still active, though. I believe he's every much as active today as he always has been. He just doesn't have to disrupt natural order every time he wants to act on our behalf. Instead, God works in non-miraculous means through his ways of providence. Providence is God's activity through the natural order that he designed from the beginning. And the majority of the time, even in Bible times, this is how God works. And this is how he's working in the life of Jacob to change him in Genesis chapter 29 when Jacob meets his two wives. God interrupts his life, and we'll ask three questions as we look at this. The first is, when does God get involved? And the second is, why does he interrupt our lives? And then the third one is, how does he operate in our lives to make us better? Let's go to the first question. When does God get involved? It might be helpful to remember where we left off last time. Rebecca and Jacob together deceived Isaac into blessing Jacob instead of the oldest son, Esau. Esau responds with this plan to murder Jacob. So, Rebekah sends her favorite son away, and the official reason for the journey is to find a wife among Jacob's people in Mesopotamia. But really what's happening is he's running away from the wrath of his brother. So, Jacob flees to Haran, which is about 700 miles away from Beersheba, where all of those events transpired. And he stopped to rest in a certain place... And he lay down his head, and he slept. And that night he had a strange dream. It wasn't an ordinary dream. He dreamed of a ladder with angels ascending and descending. And in the dream, God was speaking to him. And God repeated the covenant that he had made with Jacob's father, Isaac, and with his grandfather, Abraham. And Jacob responds to this blessing with a vow. He negotiates. If God takes care of him and brings him to his destination in peace, he would serve God faithfully and give him a tenth of his possessions. So Jacob arrives in Haran at a spiritual high point in his life. He's just had this dream. He's had this vision, and God brought him to his destination in peace. He made it. So now it's his turn to hold up his end of the bargain. And his fortune continues His mother and father sent him on this journey to find a wife from his uncle's house, Uncle Laban. And his brother Esau had married these Hittite women, these Gentile women as they would come to be known, non-Jewish people, not from the descendants of Abraham. And these women somehow, maybe because of the gods that they followed or their behavior or just their personalities, made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So 
they vowed to make sure this didn't happen with Jacob's family and sent him all the way over to Abraham's home in Mesopotamia to look for Laban, where he could get somebody in the family. And this required this long journey. But immediately upon his arrival, Jacob finds Laban's youngest daughter, Rachel. This is how Genesis 29 begins in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel his daughter is coming with the sheep. So Jacob, he must have been impressed. I mean, you think about it. You travel 700 miles on foot for who knows how many months. You finally come to the place, and day one, you arrive, you come to the first place, and you find who you're looking for. That can't be coincidence. That has to be the hand of the Lord. And so Jacob obviously you know, gets really excited, and he says to the men sitting around the well, Behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and pasture them. I think it's pretty obvious what he's doing here. He's trying to get rid of them so he can speak to Rachel in private. But they say, we can't until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. So the first thing Jacob does when Rachel arrives is he hefts this large stone from the well's mouth and he waters Laban's sheep. Now, it looks like he's showing off here. Maybe he was flexing his muscles to try to impress Rachel in some kind of, you know, mating ritual from from one of those nature documentaries that you see. Or or maybe he's just trying to get these guys to water their sheep and go so that he can speak to her privately. Either way, he's obviously very excited to see Rachel and he kisses her. This is probably not romantically, but that's what people did back then, and then he begins weeping aloud, another thing that would be a little strange on a first meeting in our day, but very common in the culture of that day. Now, you have to keep in mind, though, on Rachel's part, she still doesn't know who Jacob is. Finally, he explains that he is her father's kinsman, and he was Rebecca's son, so excitedly, Rachel runs to tell her father about all of this, and over the course of time, Jacob falls in love with Rachel. Laban had these two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And verse 17 says that Leah's eyes were weak. Some have interpreted this as a flaw in Leah's beauty, and my translation seems to lean that way, but the word could mean soft or gentle or tender. It could be meant as a compliment. But compared to Rachel, Leah just had soft eyes. 
Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So, you know, even if you give the best possible spin on the description of Leah, that her eyes were gentle or attractive or beautiful, Rachel was beautiful completely in form and in appearance, and he was obviously, she was obviously Jacob's favorite. Jacob had been blessed by God. He made his journey safely, and now he's introduced to the woman of his dreams. She wouldn't just please his parents coming from the right family, but he also really liked her. He was attracted to her. But just when everything seemed to be going his way, God interrupts and disciplines Jacob. Now, this is how it always goes. Just when we think we've got it all figured out, life happens. God interrupts. Things change. All of our plans come crumbling down. That's the way it always happens. So, we go to the second question. The first question was, when does God get involved? And the answer to that is, when we least expect it. The second question is, why does he do this? Why does God interrupt our plans? Why does he discipline us? Well, in Jacob's case, he may have had a vision, but he was far from having been transformed. He really hadn't changed much. Let me give you an example. So, he goes to Laban, he meets him, and he expresses his desire for Rachel. So, Laban suggests that Jacob should work for him and ask him about his wages, and Jacob, he already has an answer ready. In verse 18, he says, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with Jacob's proposal. He doesn't have the traditional dowry for a bride, so his offer of seven years' labor is more than reasonable. But there's more to this statement than a simple work arrangement. Jacob's offer shows that Jacob is still the schemer who's trying to be in control. Jacob's always wanting to be in control. He still thinks he can orchestrate the events of his life so that the circumstances will turn out in his favor every time. Just look how specific he is. How much time? Seven years. Which daughter? Your younger daughter. Which one? The one called Rachel. Notice he's an expert negotiator. He's always making sure that he is reading the fine print. Actually, Jacob's the one who's writing the fine print. His proposal is reminiscent of earlier scenes. You remember Esau, sell me your birthright now, swear to me now. Remember what he did to his father Isaac. I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. You remember Jacob's ladder and his response to this dream, even to God. He's negotiating. If, if you'll be with me and keep me in this way that I go, and if you give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come to my father's house in peace, then you, Lord, will be my God and I'll tithe to you. He's always scheming. He's scheming now with Laban. But he's met his match. Aside from all the lies Jacob told, 
you may not think that his behavior is all that unhealthy. I mean, what's wrong with making a few plans? What's wrong with being clear about what you want and pursuing it in an efficient, calculating way? There's nothing wrong with making plans as long as you understand you're not in control, God is in control, and your plans may come crashing down tomorrow. Jacob's problem was that he had not yet trusted in the Lord. He was still the manipulator, still seizing opportunities as if he were powerful enough to control his own life. God wants to bless us, but he knows how to improve our lives better than we do, so he asks us to trust him. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, there's this challenge to trust the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Over in James, James warns about the kind of thing Jacob's doing here, planning out the next seven years and negotiating and scheming. James says in James 4, 13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a, day, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, do it. For him, it is sin. And Jacob, making plans without the Lord, was committing sin. And that's why God broke in. To wake him up. To get him to stop relying on himself. To make him better. So we come to the third question. How does God do it? How does he operate in our lives to make us better? And you see an example of this. At the conclusion of the seven years labor, Jacob promised to his father-in-law Laban. And this, this is where things get really ugly. Okay, this is where things get strange. Most of you already know the story. But in verse 21, Moses explains, Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and, she, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Now, I don't know if you were able to notice this, but there's some eerie parallels between Laban's actions and Jacob's scheme to Jacob's scheme against his father and against Esau. 
look at them. So Jacob asks Laban in verse 25, why then have you deceived me? That's the same word Isaac used of Jacob's ruse to extract Esau's blessing from him in Genesis chapter 27, verse 35. That's not all. Laban insisted on giving the firstborn before the youngest. Did you notice the the language that he used there and the stress upon firstborn? Verse 26, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Most of the time, if you're speaking in terms of younger, you would say older, but he doesn't say younger and older. He says younger and firstborn. Ironically, Jacob had gone against his father's wishes by putting himself the youngest before the firstborn Esau. And there's more. Jacob did not know that he had married Leah. Isaac didn't know that he had blessed Jacob. And blindness really is a factor in both accounts. Jacob's blindness was contrived by Laban. He was deceived in the evening when it was dark and he couldn't see and there was a veil involved over Leah's face while Isaac's blindness was physical. And then notice the language that Laban uses calling Jacob brother in verse 15. That's the literal rendering. The translation I read a minute ago said uh, kinsman or relative but, but he calls him brother. And and uh I was just checking to make sure I was right about the translation. That reminds us of another brother, Esau, who who was wronged. And then Leah, she yielded to the plot instigated by her father. And isn't that kind of what happened to Jacob? He yielded to the plot that was made by his mother, Rebekah. So there are all of these parallels, and they're just too plain to ignore. The text is screaming at us to pay attention to what is happening, and saying God's hand is in all of this, although it's not in an overt way or a miraculous way, it's in a subtle way. And somebody may say, well, wait a minute, what makes you think this is anything more than a plot of an evil, conniving old man to get more work out of poor old Jacob? You're, somebody might say, you're just reading way too much into this. But people of faith don't read the Bible that way. People of faith know God's hand is behind everything. And there are coincidences in life. Don't get me wrong on this, but looking back, it's plain that all of this was meant to change Jacob's cunning, deceitful, conniving, cheating heart. You can't read the story of Jacob and not see this as a turning point. And if we look back on our lives with eyes of faith, we can see God working in our lives as well. And depends on how you see the world. Your worldview, that's a term for it. There are two basic worldviews at play here. The first one is that there's a God and that he does interfere in the events of human lives even now and that he answers prayer and that he disciplines the children that he loves and that life has meaning even suffering has some kind of meaning even when we can't determine it for ourselves it's there and we we trust in it that 
One day God will work all these things together for our good. Romans 8, 28. That, that's the first worldview. The other worldview is that the world is a closed system. Just some experiment conducted by a cold, distant creator. I read a statement one time by Sinclair Ferguson who said, who was describing this worldview, and he, he said it's the view that God provided an endowment fund of natural and moral laws which, if broken, will lead to disaster. That's how a lot of people look at the world. They may not necessarily deny that God exists, but they're, to use a phrase that I hear a lot, they are practical atheists. They live as if he doesn't really exist or care or get involved at all. They don't pray. They don't look for his hand in anything. Everything's a coincidence. Suffering has no meaning or benefit whatsoever. But people of faith don't look at the world that way. They believe that God gets involved. They believe in meaning. Now, if it's you, how do you know if your hardship is the discipline of the Lord or if it's just bad luck or the consequences of evil people seeking to do you harm? How do you know? Well, one way you can investigate this is by asking several questions. Number one, ask, am I going to believe that God is in control? Am I going to trust Him to take care of me? That requires a lot of humility. That requires you to become clay in the potter's hands. That's the first question. Am I going to choose faith and believe the Word of God that the Creator is always in control? The second question to ask is, has enough time transpired for me to look back and see a pattern in all of this? It took Jacob years to learn what God was doing in his life. It took his son Joseph another lifetime to, to learn that as well. And we'll get to that later on in the series. I ran across a sermon delivered by J.W. McGarvey in 1894, and he illustrated the perspective required to see God's providence in the events of life. Here's, here's what he said. A few days ago, I stood in the great fair of Chicago before a weaving machine, a wonder. There were coming out beneath the shuttles bands of silk about as wide as my hand, and perhaps a foot long, four or five coming out at one time, at different parts of the loom, woven with the most beautiful figures in diverse colors. One of them was Home Sweet Home, the words woven by that machine, and above the words was the music. There was woven at the top a beautiful cottage, trees in the yard, bee gums, and children at play, and down below the words and music, a lone man sat with his face resting on his hand. All coming out of that machine. The shuttles were flying, threads were twisting and dodging about, the machine was rattling, and no human band on it, yet there was the song, the pictures, the music were coming out. Did they come out by accident? By an accidental combination of circumstances? I could not to save my life tell how it was done, but I saw a pattern hanging up at one side with many holes through it, and I was told that that pattern was ruling the work of that intricate machinery, 
and leading to that result. I was bound to believe it. Now you can make me believe that this beautiful piece of work came out of the loom by accident and without any man directing and planning it just as easily as you can make me believe that all those intricate circumstances of my life and yours which shape and mold and direct and guide us, which take us when we are crude and wicked men and mold and shape us and grow us up until we are ripe and ready to be gathered into the eternal harvest, that all this is human or all blind force or accident and that there is no hand of God in it. He's saying that it's impossible to be a rational person and look at life that way because so many lives are changed through the providence of God that works in painful, stressful, trying times to bring about good results. So ask yourself these questions. The third question is, ask, am I keeping the purposes of God in mind as I am seeking a pattern? If you're looking for some divine puppeteer who's playing out your own vision for your life, you're not going to find him. We've got ideas of what success is, and we need to understand, God does not make people rich or popular or attractive or comfortable or shrewd or complacent. God makes people holy and righteous, faithful and spiritual and steadfast. And sometimes he does this painfully and inexplicably. But in the end, all things work together for our good. So finally, ask this question. Have I yielded to his will in every way? Study your life from every direction and ask yourself, currently, right now, in what I'm doing, Am I doing everything that I can to yield to his will? Is there some sin that I need to repent of? Is there something I need to confess? Is is there something I'm leaving off? In this moment, don't, don't think about tomorrow. Don't think about the past. Think about right now. Is there something that I can do? And if there is, do it. Don't wait around and make excuses and wallow in self-pity. Just do it. And then, even after you've asked all of these questions and trying to determine, is this just fate or is this God, you you may not be certain. It takes time. Which is why every time the providence of God is explicitly discussed in the Bible, it's always a who-knows proposition. I'm borrowing language from Mordecai in the book of Esther who went to Esther on behalf of the Jews in this book that never even uses the name of God, not even once, but the book that the Jews used to link together the survival of the Jews to the fulfillment of the promises. And Mordecai says to Esther, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? He's saying, I don't know for sure, but I think that you're queen so that you can save your people. And centuries later, Paul is writing his friend Philemon, who lives in Colossae. Philemon had a slave named Onesimus, and Onesimus ran away to Paul, who 
seems to have been in prison in Rome at the time, and Onesimus becomes a Christian. Pretty much everybody who meets Paul became a Christian. So he becomes a Christian, and Paul thinks the right thing to do here is to send Onesimus back. But this is very dangerous for Onesimus because he's broken laws, and he could be put to death for what he had done. But Paul knows Onesimus's master is a friend. Not only that, he's a Christian, and it's time for him to learn the truth about it, about what Christianity is really all about. And in the letter to Philemon, Paul speaks of all these amazing circumstances that this slave ran away who happened to be the slave of Paul's friend in Colossae, and he ran to Rome, one of the largest cities in the world at that time, maybe the largest, and somehow found Paul who was in prison and obeyed the gospel and is being sent back. And he says, for this perhaps is why Onesimus was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. That's Philemon 15. So we may not know for a long, long time whether God's hand is in it or not. But I'll tell you this, you're never going to even begin to think about it if you think the world is just a bunch of coincidences and you think in terms of fate and you don't think anybody is in control. People of faith know God is in control. They believe that he sees them and cares and acts on their behalf. And what happened to Jacob when his life was interrupted in this world was really horrible. I mean, just imagine if your in-laws gave you the wrong daughter on your wedding night and didn't tell you about it and didn't apologize afterwards. But it made Jacob better. And there are all kinds of horrible things happening in the world. And I don't mean to say that God is causing these things. Just in his mysterious way, he's using them to discipline us and to make us better. And my prayer is, if you're one of those people who are hurting who are being abused, if you're bewildered, in pain, in grief, my prayer is that you'll look at this through eyes of faith and believe that somehow God's going to work all this together for your good. It happened to Jacob, and if you'll stay with me through this series, You'll see exactly how all of that plays out on wide margins.